Good morning. We are in the second week of a series called Behold, God Makes All Things New. Last week we talked about how Jesus brought with him a new exodus. The first exodus set the Israelites free from slavery to Pharaoh, but the new exodus with Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin. And this week we're going to look at another new gift that Jesus brought with him in his first coming. Uh, But first I just want to share something that Alice and I recently started. Each morning before I drive from our house uh, to work here up at the church, uh, Alice and I pray. Uh, We read through something called the Divine Hours. This is something I wasn't familiar with. Allison bought it, and we've been just praying each morning. It comes with just a set of pre-written morning and evening prayers. Uh, We read one chapter from the New Testament and one from the Psalms, and then we pray together. And normally, this just that time of prayer just sets the whole day on the right track. Uh, But we had a very different experience recently. Uh, We were reading through the Psalms, and we got to the end of book three. All of the 150 Psalms are separated into five different books. We finished book three, and book three ends with Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. This is the challenging thing about reading all of the Bible, not just parts you're familiar with already, because these two Psalms are the deepest, darkest pit of the Psalms. Psalm 89 says some of the scariest things you could ever imagine At one point, the psalmist quotes God back to him. So the psalmist, this songwriter, is quoting God here. I will not take away my love, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. That sounds like something you would read in the psalms. But then, in the same psalm, this songwriter says, but you have rejected. You have spurned. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. Psalm 88 is just as relentless and bleak. The psalmist says, God, day and night I cry out before you, and my soul is full of trouble. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And then this line stuck with me. God, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. not exactly what you want to read right before you go to work for the day. Reading these darker psalms has been really haunting for us. It's this aspect of scripture that maybe we don't talk about very much, maybe we proactively avoid it, but after a year and more of isolation, it is not light reading. We know what it's like to be cut off from mothers or father, or grandfather, and grandparents, friends, and family. We know what it's like to be cut off from our church family, and I can't even imagine a Christian or non-Christian who would want to be cut off right now, to be far from others. For Christians, God's absence is the last thing we want to talk about, but that doesn't really solve the problem that many of us face. Many of us still want to know the answer to this question. Where is God? Where can we go looking for God and know he will be there? On what spot would God always say, I am there? Now, depending upon your personality or your life story or your experiences, different answers from Scripture may comfort you. Christians have believed 
for 2,000 years that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There's no place outside of his reach, nowhere off limits to him. And for some of us, that truth is really reassuring. But for others, it's not. Other times, we're comforted by the fact that God is present in heaven. So when we die and we're saved by Christ's forgiving grace, we go to be with the Lord. And maybe that's comforting, but it's not comforting to everybody. And that's why I want to add one answer to this question, where is God? And I can't promise it's going to bring instant comfort for you, but I think it's good news. And if you're going through a time of loneliness, a time that sounds a lot like Psalm 88 or Psalm 89, my hope is that this morning's sermon is a blessing to you. So if you have a Bible, I want us to go back to that first section we read this morning. Thanks to Pam for reading that. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. If you have uh, a, a Bible on your phone or if you have a Bible in the pew racks in front of you, we'll be in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Uh, this is one of those books that um, Christians kind of feel embarrassed about because you skip it and you're, you know, I'm going to read the Bible in a year and you don't want to read 2 Chronicles. But don't believe the cynicism. There really is so much good in this book. You've just got to know the bigger context of the story. So, over a thousand years ago, King David was king over all 12 tribes of Israel. And when he finally sat on the throne and began to be king, uh, he wanted to honor God. He wanted to build a house for God. And this, this is what many ancient rulers wanted to do. To honor their gods, they would create a temple for them. So, on one level, this desire of David's is holy and good. But God says, no thanks. I'm going to build you a house. And God means that he's going to build David a family, a dynasty of sons who will continue to come to the throne after he's gone. So in other words, God says, you want me, you want me to have a temple built by you, a house built by you, but I'm going to build you a house. And that promise is fulfilled in the birth of David's son, Solomon. So after David dies, it's time for Solomon to rise to rule over the kingdom. And one of the first things he does in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 is build a temple for God. So now God is ready for David's son, David's house, to build him a house, okay? And every single decision that Solomon makes regarding the building is packed with meaning. Sometimes we read these details and we don't know what they mean, but they're so important. Solomon builds the temple in the city of Jerusalem, which his father David captured. Even the land on which the temple is built is purchased by David in his lifetime. So clearly Solomon is continuing the legacy of his father David. The foundation is built on Mount Moriah, which is where Solomon's ancestor Abraham sacrificed an animal instead of his son Isaac. In the temple walls, Solomon puts these beautiful depictions of angels called cherubim. If you go back to the very first chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see that cherubim guard the Garden of Eden. Okay, so every single decision Solomon makes is packed with meaning. From floor to ceiling, from the outer courts to the Holy of Holies, Solomon wants every inch of the temple to send a message. Whether it's a visual message of beauty or the smell of incense filling the temple, whether it's the taste of the sacrifices and bread and wine, the whole place would just overwhelm your senses 
just like God should overwhelm each and every one of us. Solomon wants this temple to be so glorious that it is fitting for God. And finally, after years and years, Solomon finishes this temple, but he has one thing left that he has to do. He has to bring in the throne of God, which they called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, no image does this Ark justice, but I'm going to read this chapter again, and I want you to picture this whole celebration. This is God's throne that they are bringing into God's temple, God's house. Okay, let me read this chapter. Solomon assembled all of the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the leaders of the father's houses for the people in Israel. He assembles them in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant out of the city, which is called Zion, into the temple. All the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast, which is in the seventh month. All the elders of Israel came. The Levites, that is the priests, the priestly tribe, took up the ark, and they brought it and the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and Levites brought them up. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him, they were right in front of the ark, sacrificing so many sheep, so many oxen, that they can't even count. They lose track of how many anima animals they are sacrificing in honor of God. And then we're told, when the priests come out of the holy place, and all the priests had sanctified themselves, prepared them for this holy ceremony, all the Levitical singers stand east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. Once all of that happens, I love this verse so much, it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard. It was their obligation to make that song heard in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when that song is raised, with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, they say, for he is good. His steadfast love endures for and forever. And then this happens. The house of the Lord, that is this temple, was filled with the cloud so that priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Throughout the, the whole Old Testament, when God manifests himself, when he comes to be present with his people, he comes with this glorious, light-filled, mysterious cloud, and they say he is present there. But right in this moment, God moves into this temple. Now, if you're a big Bible nerd, you know that the temple is basically the tabernacle, but with bigger dimensions. But here's the thing. God's movement into the temple is a new stage in Israel's history. I love the way one scholar puts it. He says, all Jews knew at this time that Yahweh's address was one temple avenue in downtown Jerusalem. God had moved in to stay. Now, in the coming chapters, Solomon makes this prayer. It's a necessary qualifier he says to God, I have built you a magnificent temple, a place for you to dwell, but will God really dwell on earth with me? The, impl the implication is no, the heavens, not even the highest heavens, can contain you, O God. How much less this temple I have built. So he says, which is so important to recognize, God is not contained here. It's not a magical place that's more powerful than God. God's not stuck inside the temple or anything like that, but 
God's presence, his glory is truly, really there. It's so glorious, it's so magnificent that the priest can't even approach it. God himself says to Solomon in a vision later on in the book, I have heard your prayer, Solomon, and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple. If you were there 900 years ago, and you pointed at the Holy of Holies, you could say, God is there. Now, for many of us, that may be fascinating. That's an interesting walk down a historical lane. But it may not be comforting. Because sure, God may have been present to them in a special way. But where is he for us? That temple was destroyed centuries ago. We're Christians and we want to know where God is for us. That's the Old Testament. What do we know from the New Testament? Well, we heard some really good news about the temple. And look, y'all, it's just one sentence, but so much meaning is packed into this. Jesus says, almost in passing, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. I mean, at first, because many of us don't know this, this context, we just kind of glide by this statement and we keep moving. We keep reading. But this is so revolutionary, it's so grand and monumental, we cannot skip over it. Jesus is speaking about himself in the third person, and he is saying, I am greater than the temple. There's only one thing greater for any Jew at that time than the residence for God, and it is God. This is one of the most clear statements about his divinity. The temple is great, but something greater than the temple is here. The Apostle John is even more clear about this connection. Some of Jesus' opponents come up to him. They try to challenge him to perform a miracle. And Jesus answers, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And they think he's talking about the temple, the building. And so they laugh and say, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to renovate the temple. There's no way you can do that in three days. But look at that last line. The Apostle John says about Jesus, he spoke of the temple of his body. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you destroy me, if you kill my body, I will raise it up again. In other words, Jesus is the new and greater temple of God. And he is greater than the old temple because he is God present as one of us. The New Testament has an answer to the question, where is God? And it is, God is wherever Jesus is. God's address is a person, Jesus of Nazareth. But still, you might think, okay, Mitch, that's fantastic for the people living at the time, but that's not comforting to me because Jesus ascended into heaven. We don't get to see him in person, in the flesh anymore. He's not like he was on earth in the past, and maybe his presence was comforting to the apostles. That's fantastic for them, but we're 2,000 years in the future. Well, the good news is that there is another answer in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Paul wrote letters to Christians, and he said this in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
which you have from God. I don't know if you thought about how incredible the good news is, okay? This is the awe-inspiring, impossible-to-comprehend truth about the gospel. God has taken up long-term residence in you. His address is now each and every Christian on earth. When you are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured into your heart. God makes your heart his dwelling place. This means that regardless of how we feel, no Christian is truly alone. We feel alone. We feel separated. We feel isolated. And at a human level, maybe we are. Maybe we are disconnected. Maybe we aren't close to our family and friends. Maybe we, we, we are lonely. But the good news of the gospel is that God is with you. Because Christ is with you, because his spirit is poured into your heart. And I love that God is so amazing, God is so powerful, that none of these answers are in competition with each other. Yes, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. Yes, God is in heaven with all of the faithful departed. Yes, God was in the tabernacle and temple. Yes, God is present in Jesus but he is also present in our hearts. So whenever we feel like the psalmist, whenever we think that God has rejected us, whenever we think God has spurned us, put us to the side, when we're up in the middle of the night and we can't sleep, and we ask God, how long will you hide your face from me? Whenever we look around and notice that, man, it seems like darkest, darkness is our closest friend. The truth is, because of Jesus, we are not alone. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are not cut off. Because of our Heavenly Father, we are not isolated. God is with us. He's with you. That's not a metaphor. That's not an opinion. It's a fact. God is with you. That is the good news. Jesus brought so many new things when he came 2,000 years ago. Last week, we talked about the new exodus, the freedom from slavery to sin that comes through Christ. But the good news of this morning is that he was the new and greater temple, and in light of him, he makes each and every one of us temples of the Holy Spirit, which means that we are not alone, however we may feel. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your presence, your omnipresence, that you are truly everywhere, no place is off limits to you. You're never limited by geography or location. And at the same time, you are present in heaven with all of the angels and all of the saints, all of the faithful departed who have gone before us. And by your grace, you are 
in some mysterious way present in the tabernacle and the temple for your people Israel. But then you did something even greater. You came as a human, as one of us, in the flesh. But you're even more gracious, you're more abundant in your generosity. You didn't stop there. You gave us the Holy Spirit, which is present in our hearts. Sometimes we don't feel this way. We feel alone and separated and isolated. We look around. We don't know who really has our back. We don't really feel supported. We're far from family. We've lost friends. And Father, we are just overwhelmed by that loneliness. And the enemy uses that loneliness to separate us from you. Father, remind each and every person in this room that you are with us because Christ is with us, because the Spirit is in us. We thank you that you go so far beyond just freedom from slavery. You, you promise us proximity, closeness, and intimacy. We hope this time together this morning is just a small thank you for all that you've given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.